Welcome. I invite you to listen in on my daily personal reflections as I follow the Robert Murray McShane Bible Reading Plan. You can find this plan on, for instance, BiblePlans.org. I'm recording these reflections, or daily devotions, to provide one example of how one individual reflects upon and reacts to Scripture. My hope is that in listening in on my personal reflections, you, the listener, will be encouraged in the development of your own daily Scripture reading habits and begin to hear, to hear the Spirit speaking to you through the Scripture. These reflections are not examples of deep exegesis and interpretation. For that, you can listen to my Slow Walk Through Revelation series or other podcasts that I produce. Rather, I'm inviting you to listen in on how my spirit responds to the scriptures and the Holy Spirit as he speaks to me through this daily habit. Feel free to join me twice daily as I divide the McShane family reading into morning and evening reflections. The secret readings I keep to myself. Also, feel free to simply listen to the scripture reading and spend time with the Spirit and the text to form your own habit of listening to the Spirit in the text. July 9th. Today I'll be reading Joshua chapter 11 as we follow along the Robert Murray McShane Bible reading plan. I'll be reading from Joel Edmund Anderson's translation of the Torah and the former prophets. His translation can be found on amazon.com. Uh, find your preferred translation on biblegateway.com. Joshua chapter 11. When King Yabin of Hazor heard about this, he sent for King Yobab of Madon, the king of Shimron, the king of Akshaf, and the kings who were in both the northern hills and in the Arabah of the Negev around Chinneroth, in the lowlands, as well as those in Naphoth-dor by the sea. He also sent for the Canaanites of the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites in the hills, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mitzpah. They came out with all their forces, a great many people with their horses and chariots. They were like the sand on the seashore. All these kings joined forces and came and encamped together by the waters of Maram to fight Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not show any fear before their face, for tomorrow at this time I will give all of them slain before the face of Israel. You will hamstring their horses and will burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all the people readied themselves for battle and suddenly came up and fell upon them by the waters of Merom. The Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, and Israel struck them down and pursued them as far as Rabbah Sidon, Misraphath Mayim, and the valley of Mitzpah in the east. They struck them down until no survivor was left for them. Joshua did to them just like the Lord had told him. 
he hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Then Joshua turned back at the, that time and captured Hazor and struck down its king with the sword. For Hazor had formerly been the head of all those kingdoms. They struck down every soul in it with the mouth of the sword, devoting everything to the ban. There was no one left breathing. Then he burned Hazor with fire. All of the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck down with the mouth of the sword, devoting everything to the ban, just like Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But Israel did not burn any of the cities that stood on the mounds except for Hazor. That one Joshua did burn. Still, the sons of Israel did plunder the spoil of these cities, including the beasts. They also struck down all among Adam with the mouth of the sword until they had exterminated them. They did not leave anyone who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so did Moses command Joshua, and Joshua did it. He did not neglect even one word from everything that the Lord had commanded Moses. Joshua captured all of that land, the hills, all the Negev, all the land of Goshen, the lowland, the Arabah, the hills of Israel, and her lowland, from Mount Halak, rising to Seir, up to Baal God in the valley of Lebanon. Below Mount Hermon, he captured all their kings, struck them down, and put them to death. For many days Joshua made war with all those kings. There was not one city that made peace with the sons of Israel, except for the Hivites who dwelled in Gibeon. Everyone else was captured in war, for it was the Lord who hardened their hearts to engage Israel in battle so that they would be devoted to the ban and there would be no mercy for them. They were to be exterminated, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. At that time, Joshua came and cut down the Anakim from the hills, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, from all the hills of Judah, and from all the hills of Israel. Joshua devoted their cities to the ban. While none of the Anakim were left in the land of the sons of Israel, some were left in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. So Joshua captured all the land according to all the, that the Lord had spoken to Moses and gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal portions, and then the land had rest from war. Thus ends the reading for the day. Joshua chapter 11, again, according to the Robert Murray McShane reading plan. So in today's reading of Joshua 11, which is the campaign against the northern territories of uh, the land of Canaan, the promised uh, territories, uh, territories that have been pro promised to Abraham and his descendants uh, hundreds of years ago now at this point. There's a couple things that jump out at me that sort of bookend uh, what in our Bibles is, is separated out as a chapter, and it's not a bad separation point um, to set this aside um, by indicating a chapter here and having the chapter end at the land being at rest from war. But it, I, I find there's an interesting kind of bookending thing here. So uh, one of the things that I noted, 
note in verse 4 is they came out with all their forces, a great many people with their horses and chariots. They were like the sand of the seashore. Uh, there's a couple little images in there that uh, I think to the original reader um, and those of us who have spent time paying attention to how uh, Hebrew authors narrative works uh, the first thing I know is like there's a great many people and then it says with their horses and chariots and in the biblical narrative uh, there's almost an immediate association of the horses and chariots with Egypt so uh, there's a connection here between uh, again uh, as I talk about in various uh, in my revelation talks and in uh, just the way I see scripture as a whole there's obviously warring kingdoms literally warring kingdoms here but there's also this uh, kingdom of God versus uh, the kingdoms of this world the kingdoms of earth uh, a king like the nations that kind of language and the temptation is always for those who are seeking to belong to the kingdom of God to uh, become idolatrous to turn and, and become uh, more like the kingdoms of this world the kingdoms of the earth which then themselves tend to tend toward tyranny uh, and of course uh, we know from history that in our current way of talking about things tyrannies can come from the right or the left uh, that is seems to me something that scripture uh, and the these ancient authors were aware of from the beginning that uh, however good our intentions are with institutions and here I don't just mean political institutions uh, they can be businesses charities churches families there's always a temptation for uh, this assumption that uh, if you just had one person kind of doing all the being in charge or one system uh, it would be easier wouldn't it be better if just everybody just obeyed so this temptation toward tyranny uh, and this comes up in our in our film and television media all the time uh, you can see this theme running through so many movies any movie involving kind of conflict from uh, the Incredibles the MCU uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe I mean what is Loki's line in the first Avengers movie uh, you see it in shows like the the walking dead uh, the little communities the temptation even for the main character uh, for the first many seasons uh, he's he himself is tempted uh, or or the people want to make him sort of this uh, totalitarian leader will do whatever Rick says Rick is the main character but that's throughout but early on in scripture this is this is the theme so this little mention of horses and chariots uh, these these are little city-states but they're they're the 
the metaphor, the image here is that they are little tyrannies. And of course, the kingdom of Israel um, is supposed to be different with God as its king. Um, but first they need to uh, subdue these uh, tyrannical rulers in the land. And then the other element here that's interesting to me uh, is there was a great many people with their horses and chariots. They were like the sand of the seashore. So they are many. And then the, the image used here, the sand of the seashore, well, that's kind of the promise to Abraham as well, that his descendants will become like the sand of the seashore. So this small group of uh, 12 tribes under the leadership of Joshua, who's under uh, the command of the Lord. Uh, I, Throughout my readings, I'm always going to, uh, in um, Joel's translation, he helpfully puts uh, the Tetragrammaton uh, in English transliteration, Y-H-W-H, yod Hey vav Hey in the Hebrew, which is uh, the divine name, but um, you don't pronounce it. So whenever I see that in the text, I, I will say Lord. And in your other translations, that will, when the, the divine name is present, they will usually capitalize all the English letters. So Lord will be all in, in all capitals. If it's just the ordinary Hebrew word for Lord, um, they might capitalize the first letter, but they won't capitalize everything. So I will always say Lord, even if it's the Tetragrammaton. Um, so the problem, they're, they're encountering the people that is like the sand of the seashore. So that is the promise of what they will, they will themselves will become. The descendants of Abraham will be like the sand of the seashore. So uh, they're encountering a force here in this uh, narrative of tyranny of little city-states with uh, single ruler kings. They're encountering that. Now, I, I'm also reminded of Deuteronomy 17 when it gives rules for uh, when Israel begins to ask for a king. And again, it's throughout the these books, um, the asking for a king, uh, which will come up a lot in Judges, and of course will begin to be fulfilled in uh, Samuel, first with Saul, then with David. The asking for a king is not the ideal, because the ideal is that God is the king, but the people are going to begin to ask like a king ask for a king like the nations and here you have in in scripture this sort of uh, idea of the character of God that when people ask of him he'll often give them what they want but with warning like if you if you do this this is these are going to be the consequences you can trace that back to the the trees right so 
the tree tree of life you can eat from, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that. If you do, the consequence is going to be uh, death. The consequence is going to be toil, struggle. All these things are going to come about while they go and eat from it. It often happens, and the temptations in the wilderness uh, with Israel, um, when the people grumble and complain, uh, God does respond to their grumbling and complaining and gives them what they want. Um, but he often gives consequences or their demands for for satisfaction um, end up having con unforeseen consequences for them, even if God has warned them. So, for instance, uh, they want food and well they want water and even though they're only a f actually a few days away from going to like a basically an oasis in the wilderness um, God grants them water ahead of time um, they need food and God answers that by giving them manna and he tells them the consequences of this is what's going to happen if you gather more than you need of course, they gather more than they need and they find out the consequences. Then they complain about eating manna all the time and they want meat. I want meat, meat, meat. So God says, oh, I'll give you quail. Um, and I think the image here is I'm going to give you quail until the quail is coming out your nose. Basically, I'll give you so much of what you think you want and what you think you need that you're going to get sick of it. <laughs> like you're going to get like you you think you want this but you're you're going to get sick of eating it too. I'm going to give you so much um that that's not going to satisfy you either. And I think that's partly what's going on when you know Jesus is tempted with in the wilderness um the, the temptation is uh turn this stone into bread and Jesus response is basically saying, "Well, I could do that." But that's not going to satisfy me. Um, the, what's going to satisfy me ultimately is uh, trusting in God and the word of God. Man cannot live by bread alone. And so he could fulfill that temporary satisfaction in the wilderness. He was capable of doing it. He multiplies loaves later. But in, and being the obedient son, as opposed to the disobedient son Israel... And Israel is described as God's firstborn son in the Exodus. He's the obedient son that that uh, doesn't uh, demand that he be fed in instantaneously, but trusts that God will um, satisfy him ultimately. And so you have that here, where uh, this warning about wanting a king. Uh, he's going to let them have a king. They're going to start demanding for it. And so Deuteronomy, it says, when you ask for a king and when there is a king, these are some of the things that he ought to do and ought not to do. And one of those things that he ought not to do is gather many horses. And again, that's do not become like Egypt. Do not become like Pharaoh. Because why do you gather many horses? You gather many horses because you're going to go on a conquest, right? So they have been given 
a specific area of land. That's what they've been promised. Uh, and they are not, even when they have a king, they're not supposed to be uh, conquesting king uh, empire wannabe. So unlike Egypt, unlike the Assyrians, unlike the Babylonians, of course that's in the narrative, that's not here yet, but for the author and the editor of this, those, the Assyrians and Babylonians are already history or maybe uh, uh, contemporary with the author uh, is Babylon. And so we're, Israel is not supposed to be an empire. It's not supposed to, it has this one relatively small chunk of the earth and it is supposed to be an example kingdom that other other peoples every tribe tongue, tongue and nation is supposed to be drawn to their way of doing things um, and want to be like them it is not supposed to be a kingdom that continues to push out and violently conquer like that's one of the things here that in in joshua this is um uh the way it's described in uh dealing with abraham is that his people are going to go into bondage and when the the iniquity the sin of the canaanites comes to full fruition that means like sort of like they get as bad as they're going to get when basically when they all become like Sodom and Gomorrah, um, which is an inhospitable, violent place, uh, then God is going to use the people of Israel to cleanse that land and it's going to be taken away from the current inhabitants and given over to the people of Israel who are supposed to establish a a kingdom under God that is different from these other kingdoms that is supposed to be hospitable to the the stranger uh, the sojourner and is supposed to take care of the widow and the orphan um, and is not supposed to uh, rape the guests when they <laughs> come into town uh, that's the images in Sodom and Gomorrah so the king is not supposed to gather horses. He's not supposed to be this conquesting king. Uh, then at the end of this section, um, so again, these are just my, what's jumping into my head um, as we, <laughs> we think about uh, how we as Christians interact with our own nations. Uh, we should not be pro conquest pro-empire but of course we've seen in the past um, starting with uh, Constantine that that's that is still the temptation even for those of us who call ourselves or consider ourselves followers of Christ so I want to go to the end of this section because something else jumped out at me here and this again picks up these themes tying together things all the way from back in in Genesis and um, the beginning of uh, Joshua when uh, or actually no goes back to uh, numbers and the, the wilderness wanderings so at the end of this chapter you get a mention of the Anakim 
Uh, I'll read 21 to 23 again. At that time, Joshua came and cut down the Anakim from the hills, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, from all the hills of Judah, and from all the hills of Israel. Joshua devoted their cities to the ban. While none of the Anakim were left in the land of the sons of Israel, some were left in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. So Joshua captured all, captured all the land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses and gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal portions. And then the land had rest from war. So the Anakim are uh, related to the, the Nephilim um, from the early chapters of Genesis. Uh, and the Nephilim uh, are products of or um, related to these again it's an image of a tyrant king they conquer and they take take women from whoever they choose right and so uh, these are in my view powerful tyrant images but it's this uh, in biblical language they're also demonic beastly in the way they do things um, I don't see much of a separation we don't need to get um, I don't. I don't think you totally need to mythologize those as, as uh, the like what it mentions the sons of the, sons of the gods. Um, I don't think we need to equate those with de demons, that is, angelic figures mating with humans. I think those are demonic kings, demonic rulers, who uh, act tyrannously like that is the image throughout scripture that these things become beastly kingdoms become demonic uh, there isn't a whole lot of any indication of even angels or demons acting too much outside of what we would think of material powers so um, they they work through just as God works through Israel and people made to be his image or that's the ideal so uh, the demonic forces work through uh, other nations and kingdoms and powers and institutions um, and I would suggest that Jesus suggests that the demonic is actually working through the temple system when uh, he confronts the leaders of the temple um, and Jerusalem uh, which is part of the reason that they turn on him and uh, want to crucify him so, uh, yeah, so the Anakim and the Anakim are giants, right? So what, why don't, remember Joshua is one of the original uh, spies sent into the land when, uh, when, they're, when they first arrive um, 40 years ago um, and they see giants in the land land they see anakim and they're afraid so they don't want to go in well only joshua and caleb say no we can do this so that's why joshua and caleb become leaders later um, when they return to the land 40 40 years later after their wilderness wandering well now joshua has eliminated the giant problem the the these uh, large men mostly 
because it tells us that there's a few places where uh, some of the Anakim still dwell. And one of those places they mention is Gath. And that's going to kind of uh, hint forward, foreshadow um, when the land becomes truly at rest under a good king, uh, David, because what's David going to do? He's going to defeat the Gol Goliath of Gath. So the land is at, at rest, um, meaning at rest from war, um, but it does have that Sabbath rest element to it. Um, but there's already hints of things left undone, and I think in the next chapter or two chapters from now, it's going to tell you the areas that aren't conquered. And those areas, uh, again, looking forward, are going to uh, reappear um, as problems in First uh, Samuel, and they're ultimately going to be uh, David's the one that's going to deal with them ultimately. And so he will bring that full land to rest. So for me, some of the some of the takeaways today for me, just in terms of, and this, these are my interests, uh, these little connections that one could just pass over if one's not doing a close reading, the mention of horses and chariots, the mention of the people being like the sand of the seashore, uh, the mention of the Anakim uh, and and particular places that are going to come up again and the mention of uh, the land being at rest but hinting it eh, it's a, it might not stay at rest because there's still a few places where the Anakim dwell but in terms of uh, contemporary application the world is still full of giants and forces that run tyrannously. Now, as Christians, we're, we're not called to uh, physical warfare with those kingdoms. We're called to be followers of Christ who didn't take up arms against Rome as people expected and even wanted him to. Uh, he didn't, uh, you know, even his cleansing of the temple was not... Uh, <laughs> the kind of cleansing that some of his followers wanted, which was cleansing with uh, the sword, we are to, as Israel was supposed to do, show an alternate politics, an alternate way of living. And the beauty of that, when it is done, is supposed to draw people to want to imitate it. And so by imitating Christ, by imitating the king, the the ruler of the kingdoms of this world, uh, people should be attracted to that and then be attracted to Christ and then want to be in a relationship with him. So those are my uh, thoughts today and uh, some of the ways that I connect those things to how I see uh, modern politics and uh, the role of the individual Christian and the church community. Again, I always encourage you to read these things on your own, uh, in your own favorite, preferred translation, and uh, to see what jumps out at you. And of course, the more you do, do this, the more connections like the ones that I made today, uh, you too may see. 
Thanks for joining me. Thank you for joining me for this morning's personal reflection. Don't forget to join me this evening, release time 5 o'clock, for the evening's personal reflection according to the Robert Murray McShane reading plan. If you find these reflections helpful and encouraging, then don't forget to subscribe and turn on notifications. Again, my hope is that in sharing my personal reflections with you, you will form your own habits of listening for the Spirit and reading the text. Enjoy the rest of your day.